0: One hour in, we've made it three pages.
1: Never mind what I
0: said. Never mind what I said about getting out of here in an hour. You jinxed shoot us. Me now.
1: Okay. I'm so excited to talk about a Miller ride later, guys. It's gonna be great. Oh. Miller are gonna come through in the flood. This is not this the day, not the we day we're, we're talking about Miller No. Yeah. Oh
0: my god. <laughs> at your eulogy will be like and he prepared this statement on a milleride (laughs) that he never got to do on your tombstone John.
2: we'll do it right now
1: (laughs) a milleride so great
3: that's it
0: Renal physiology, a complex yet logical and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to an accounting of our two year mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated functions. To understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis. This is Channel Your Enthusiasm, the Burton Rose Cocktail Club, and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we are discussing Chapter 8, Regulation of Effective Circulating Volume, something that we are always working to determine on our patients, something that has incredible clinical relevance, and I'm excited to get into this. Tonight, we are joined by uh, Juan Carlos. Juan, introduce yourself. Hello
4: everybody, Juan Carlos Veles, nephrologist at Oxner Medical Center in New
0: Orleans. And what academic rank do you have, Juan Carlos?
2: <laughs> yeah, what's your title?
4: Yeah, <laughs> I was recently promoted to profet- full professor. Very happy about it, Pro thank
0: professor you. Professor of medicine! Yes! Bravo! Outstanding. Anna? Oh,
5: I have to follow that. I'm Anna Getty, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a Nephrology Fellow, um, finishing up my fellowship at Anna, by
0: the time this is published, by the time this is published, you'll probably be an An associate professor. <laughs>
6: That's true. depending <laughs> on how quickly you edit this, yeah.
0: <laughs> so where are you working now? Pretend this so is. So I am
5: a, by the time this is published, I will be an assistant
0: professor at Medical College of Wisconsin. Nice. Mm-hmm. Outstanding, outstanding. Melanie?
2: I'm Melanie Honig, and I am at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center
7: and Harvard Med School. Roger. Roger Rodby. I'm at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. Letty
3: And uh, I'm Leticia Rolon. I'm an assistant professor at UCSF.
0: So we also have Amy Yao here. Amy, introduce yourself.
3: Hi, yes, I'm
6: Amy Yao. I am at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And
1: uh, Josh, introduce yourself, Josh. Sure. This is Josh Waitsman uh, By the time this podcast airs, I will be an instructor of medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. Hey, congratulations. Right. Thanks, so are guys.
0: you going to be staying on in the same lab after graduation?
1: Same lab, same clinical stuff. Uh, my clinical practice is going to move from downtown Boston out into the suburbs into Lexington, but I'll be in service at BI a couple of weeks a year.
7: Same low salary. Same, uh, slightly
1: higher low salary, but still very low. Don't worry.
5: <laughs> See the problem uh, is the more money you make, the more money you excrete, and you really just reach a steady state of having enough food to eat and nothing <laughs> in <bed laughs> the bank.
7: Well, that's a, that's what a responsible person does. That's good. That's does. good. Some people go into negative balance and, and <laughs> just, and then their credit cards go crazy, and then they're in <laughs> trouble. So,
0: okay. Chapter 8, Regulation of the Effective Circulating Volume. Burton Rose starts this chapter off. He says the maintenance of adequate tissue perfusion is essential for normal cellular metabolism. And he points out important the important difference from osmoregulation is that you need to have multiple levels of sensors and effectors. And that's kind of repeated kind of throughout this chapter. There's various experiments that Try to isolate different sensor levels. And then there's other experiments to try to isolate different effectors. And it's actually, it's actually super interesting how it all gets integrated because there's a lot of redundancy and it's really difficult to knock out the system. You kind of get a sense of how fundamentally important maintaining perfusion or effective circulating volume is by the difficulty that it is to kind of knock this out. Anybody have some kind of initial thoughts on that?
7: I really like the the way he starts out, you know, pointing out that osmolality is really only one sensor system because every cell in the body has to have is going to have the same osmolality and you don't really need it except for one place but yet you've got all these different organ areas that have different perfusions and things can change based on needs and flow and pressures and that sometimes things dilate and sometimes things constrict And that the body isn't one organ the body is many organs but from an osmolarity standpoint you only need one sensor but you need several sensors and several effectors for volume and pressure so I really hadn't thought about it so soon but I really like that.
2: I was just going to say one thing that always... Amazes me, and I I still have to just keep thinking about it. Is how amazing the body is at sensing pressure or stretch, and how bad we are at it. Like, (laughs) get these crude blood pressure cuffs out, and we're trying to ascertain what's going on, and we really fail compared to the exquisite sensors of the body. When
3: I first even just read the title, I I think this idea of an effective circulating volume is something that's constantly baffling young learners. Like, what do you mean by effective? You mean the arterial pressure? What exactly do you mean? And so, and then it gets confused, especially with the new terminology. What's the extracellular fluid versus effective circulating volume? What's the difference? And I think that it took me years to actually understand the different the distribution of volume and fluid in the body. And here is the the meat of why it's so important.
0: I especially loved that summary sentence when, as he's finishing up the introduction to effective circulating volume. In summary, the effective circulating volume is an unmeasured entity that reflects tissue perfusion, right? Like we talk about this thing like it's totally concrete, but the reality is we have synthesized it. It's a conceptual tool that we use to describe perfusion rather than like anything that's like concrete or measurable, unmeasurable, it says.
5: I find that often when I'm trying to explain something, I'll say they're intravascularly volume depleted. And really what I'm talking about is their effective circulating volume. And that's what I liked about even in this first couple of sentences, he says, actually, it's really not the volume. It's actually the pressure perfusing the baroreceptors, which I thought was a really lovely way of saying it, because when you're saying they're intravascularly volume deplete, people go, so should we give them volume then? That's the natural corollary. And then the, our answer is almost never just yes. So, and the reason is, well, actually what we're saying they need is pressure.
0: Perfect. We are talking about effective circulating volume. If I, Am I right? This is, a, this is this a concept that Schreier came up with?
7: I don't know if it's a Schreierism or not, uh, maybe someone can answer that, but I certainly was first aware of it when reading his book. And you go back and read a lot of his work with serotics, and I think it is, but I don't really know. I...
6: The concept of effective arterial circulating volume came from the musings of Dr. John P. Peters. Dr. Peters was born in 1887. He attended Yale University for college and graduated from Columbia's College of Physicians and Surgeons in 1913. He served as the chief of the metabolic division at the Department of Medicine at Yale University from 1922 until his death in 1955. His most notable achievement is the development of the flame photometer, which provided accurate measurements of sodium and potassium in serum and urine samples within minutes, whereas previous methods to measure these levels were laborious and time consuming. And he was important in advancing the interpretation of clinical chemistry and clinical diseases. In 1935, in his publication Body Waters, He first described the principle of the kidneys to, quote, respond to some fluctuation of the volume circulating blood, but is indifferent to the changes in the volume of the body fluids at large, a principle which became important when discussing the role of sodium balance and edema. Although not a nephrologist, he was interested in metabolism, electrolyte, and acid-base equilibrium, nephritis, and water exchange, and he is remembered for being a dedicated clinician and mentor by those who knew him. Because of his many contributions, in 1983, the American Society of Nephrology established an annual award in his name to recognize individuals who have made substantial research contributions to nephrology and sustained achievements in academic medicine.
7: Getting back to the term, though, it's it's really a... Very smart term because the adjective effective takes care of everything else for you. You know, it basically takes care of all the mystery of pressure and flow. It's it's you know effective. It's like what is actually getting there. And as you pointed out, I mean, Dr. Rose can't even define it. He says we you know we know what it is, but we can't really define it. It's kind of like oh years ago when uh, the Supreme Court was ruling on pornography. It said you know I don't I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. It's very hard to define effective circulating volume, but I, I know when it's low.
8: Frag is referring to the 1964 case of Jacobellis versus Ohio, which was tried in the Supreme Court to determine whether the state of Ohio was unconstitutional in banning the Louis Malle film The Lovers. The state of Ohio maintained that the film was hardcore pornography and thus obscene and outside the protections of the First Amendment. In his opinion, Justice Powder Stewart wrote, I shall not today attempt further to define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced within that shorthand description, and perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so. But I know it when I see it, and the motion picture involved in this case is not that.
4: But what I like about the definition is the phrase about perfusing, you know, the the concept of perfusion that is a little bit more complex to simply volume. And We're going to probably expand more throughout the, the chapter today about disease states, but I want to just add to what Anna said earlier and ask sort of a quick poll to the group. How many of you get bothered during rounds when you hear the statement of intravascular volume depletion?
0: Yes. I'm just wondering if I am. Alone I get
5: bothered this, but I say it sometimes.
0: I, I must say I'm embarrassed that I have not caught the mistake there. I use that all the time as a synonym for effective circulating volume, which is what I really intend to be saying. And Anna's actually absolutely right. That that's not what we're that's not what I mean we to mean be saying. Actually. <laughs> this time.
5: It's true. Yeah.
0: I can't even compliment you without getting the blowback. That's the most Anna thing ever. (laughs) But,
4: you know, it's the way that Anna said is very important in the sense that if you make the assumption that it's just a volume concept, then your immediate reaction will be to volume replete to fix that problem. And we are going to have discussions about disease states such as cirrhosis and others where... That is not necessarily the, the correct maneuver.
7: you got to make sure that, that true volume depletion is a subset of effective volume depletion, just not all, effect, not oh. all volume or effective volume depletion is intravascular volume depletion.
4: Yeah, I think it's a, the, the, the association to me is when somebody mentions intravascular volume depletion, that concept could be mistakenly translated into saying, okay, the intravascular is depleted, not the interstitium. And when we think about the extracellular fluid as a whole, You're not going to have that dissociation between intravascular and interstitial. I think that is where the word intravascular is is not very accurate.
5: When I think about those situations that I'm describing it, I'm talking about people in which whoever was asking me or whoever I'm talking to, maybe I think they're not sure about the volume status. Whereas I think if someone's total body volume depleted, like if you've got some little, you know, old lady who has not ate or drank and her blood pressure is, you know, that's not a mystery. You don't need to say intravascularly volume depleted. Like ever, it's not. It's clear. I'm using it erroneously in the context of decompensated cirrhotic patient.
3: Well, the other thing that makes it complicated, I think, is this idea of like what is the effective circulatory volume for each organ? You know, because it's like almost getting to the the end organ per- perfusion for the kidneys. We know that it's when you know they're still making urine, or for the brain is when you're still mentating And that we've also talked about before how uh, the kidneys can be used to a higher blood pressure. And so even a 40-point drop uh, may be enough to not be effective circulated volume for the kidney, even though it's still considered normal blood pressure. And so I think that also makes it a very hard concept.
1: Can I ask kind of a basic question here? Like when in training was the first time you as a human being were introduced to the idea of effective circulating volume? Because I feel like for me, it was as a nephrology fellow, maybe late in the first year. And it was something that like suddenly helped make everything make sense. And I feel like this is something we really need to push earlier to an idea of like getting this into how much effective perfusion are you getting to your vital organs? How much blood flow is your kidney seeing? What does that mean for your physiology? And I think the way that he describes it here in this really early section of this chapter is like critical to getting that message out.
5: But don't you think that's one of the cool things about the kidney that, you know, if you think about end organ perfusion and end organ damage, all the other biomarkers I can think of are markers of damage, whereas the kidney will tell you it needs more volume before your creatinine actually bumps. Like you will have, you know, the low urine sodium is your...
1: It's like the pre pro of the kidney. Yeah. yeah, right. So I think I that's like really it. Neat. So
0: he defines this. He says that uh, it's the fraction of the extracellular fluid that is in the arterial system. So it's the arterial blood volume. And that it usually is about 700 cc's in a 70 kilogram man.
1: In a in normal, healthy person in normal who not have yeah. heart failure or it's, it's usually about. That's right. We describe it
0: as a volume, but that's not how it's perceived by the body. The body perceives it as stretch or pressure. That we have arterial baroreceptors in the carotid sinus and the glomerular afferent arterioles. And it is changes in the pressure or stretch rather than volume or flow that are actually sensed.
7: The, the the thing that's always bothered me about that is that everybody's got different blood pressures. And so the only way you can reckon that is that maybe pressure relative to what your pressure is and that you set yourself at that pressure. And if your pressure falls, then, you, then you're then you sending out a, an impulse that I'm underfilling. It's interesting in the first paragraph, it says pressure or stretch rather than volume or flow. Uh, and then t- two paragraphs later, it says this de- decline in pressure and flow. You know, it's not that clear, you know, that it's just pressure because they're all related by uh, Poussin's law, you know, that pressure and flow and radius and viscosity, they're all kind of part of the same thing. Is it just pressure? I suppose it's a stretcher chapter that makes the most sense, but I always like to think of it as end organ perfusion, which is you can't define. And so that's why I like the term effective, you know, effective circulating volume because, you know, pressures change. That doesn't mean, you know, that you're going to automatically stimulate the system that much. JC had brought up the, the idea of volume depletion, not always needing volume. That always reminds me of when I talked to the residents about urine sodium, which is kind of the same thing. We're really talking about the same thing, that if the urine sodium is low, the kidney is perceiving uh, volume depletion, but that doesn't mean that the body needs volume and that you can have just about any volume status with, with any urine sodium. And I think that's what Table 8.1 is basically trying to show us, that you can be sodium depleted, you can have heart failure, or you can be shunting
0: the kids today they talk about well this is my truth well the urine sodium is the kidney's truth right that's what the kidney is seeing for the volume regardless of what total body volume is department the, if they they have heart failure or cirrhosis if that urine sodium is low that kidney is saying hey there's decreased uh, effective circulating volume
7: and i and the kidney's not wrong i mean i'm yeah there's no, i don't think there's a
5: scenario in which the kidney is not seeing it but the heart is or i can't think
0: of Oh, but they oh, but we have them right but we know, we know is one. Oh, that's true.
6: Well, yes. Okay, that's true. Actually, at the end of the chapter, one of his questions asks that exact question is which one of these like options is the best most accurate assessment for effective circulating volume and he notes cardiac output plasma volume systemic blood pressure and urine urinary sodium excretion and so i think really when i think about volume status i mostly just care about what the kidney is seeing because that to me is really what's happening in the patient
4: i think it's one point to make about the urine sodium is that in the context of acute kidney injury or chronic kidney disease i don't think we have the, the type of experimental clinical evidence that is as accurate as it is in a healthy volunteers or in patients with completely normal kidney function. You know, let's say somebody has normal kidney function, is hyponatremic. Yes, you can use urinary sodium to guide what's happening with that patient. But I think the issue that I have with urinary sodium is when we are seeing patients with acute kidney injury, acute tubular injury, and all those other scenarios where, you know, the kidneys are healthy. So, I still think that what you said, the credit, i we truly believe what the kidney says if it's healthy.
5: I get a lot of, like, jokingly, I think, that people always be like, fix this person's kidneys when they consult me. I mean, I don't do... I never do that, really, unless I'm starting somebody on pressers. But, like, so often... My job is not to fix the kidney, but it's to interpret what the kidney is telling you for you, so that you can fix the rest of their body appropriately.
1: I, I think building what Anna is saying, it's important to understand like what the sensor is that the kidney has. I think this builds on Roger's point too as well. Like this sensor the kidney has is this stretch receptor. Um, if you go to like a molecular level, it's the piezo like protein receptors of stretch that the nerves are innervating these arteries on the on the afferent arterial and on the carotid sinus. That if you stretch. The the kidney gets a sense of, oh, there's enough volume for me. And if you're not stretching, if you're not getting enough good forward cardiac output, if you're not getting enough arterial mesoconstriction, you're not there.
0: I think we've got to slow our roll a little bit. I think we've jumped right into pathology really quickly because we're super excited to talk about it. But let's rewind a little bit and let's walk through just the physiology of uh, effective circulating volume and how it's supposed to act. And we're going to get to the pathology definitely. I know uh, that's all we can talk about, though, since it's amazing. We never get consulted on healthy kidneys. That's why we're excited about
1: the sick kidneys.
0: <laughs> and honestly, the book it just forces you to be super patient, right? All we want to learn about is pathology and it's like we're two hundred and sixty pages in and we haven't seen one sick patient yet. We gotta to get to part three, I think, before we start seeing pathology. So he says that the effective circulating volume, it varies directly with the extracellular fluid volume. And that varies with total body sodium. And that's like the important concept to understand because we, we immediately went to oh, well, you look at the urine sodium, and that's going to give you a sense of what the kidney thinks about the effective circulating volume. Why is that? Because the effective circulating volume is proportional to the extracellular fluid volume, which is proportional to the total body sodium. And that's because sodium is your primary extracellular solute, it acts to hold water in the extracellular space. And so the punch there is that the regulation of sodium balance and the regulation of effective circulating volume are tied together. Melanie?
2: I'm so glad that you said let's go back to normal physiology before we get to pathophysiology because the first reference in this chapter is from the other Epstein, Frank Epstein. And it studies of the antidiuresis of quiet standing. And they actually looked at the fact that if you stand up for a while then you actually decrease your urinary sodium. And I just, I love that paper, and I thought it was interesting that he brought that up.
0: Yeah, what's the idea of this paper, quiet standing?
5: I mean, it sounds like something I'd really enjoy, so please tell me more. Yeah,
2: so Frank Epstein wrote this paper. The senior author is Arnold Relman, who used to be the New England Journal of Medicine editor. And they literally studied healthy young men, of course. They emptied their bladder first, and then they had them stand. They checked, I think, about an hour supine, an hour standing, an hour supine again, and looked at the urine flow rate and the urine sodium during this time. And they found that with quiet standing, (laughs) there's less urinary sodium.
7: Well, that just tells you how sensitive this thing is. It's absolutely amazing, because even though we have mechanisms of not pooling completely, you know, if we didn't have that, as, it, as he goes in very quickly, if you stand up, you, your legs would blow up and your, your brain wouldn't get any flow. But uh, we have mechanisms, but it's not perfect. And, and there is some pooling, and it's so sensitive that you can even pick it up by uh, urine sodium when you quietly stand. I suppose that's, I suppose, the loudly standing, but... <laughs> it's a very sensitive mechanism it's absolutely incredible
6: and actually I was going to ask because I had a patient the other day who came in with uh, just some vague symptoms but was found to have bilateral carotid artery dissections and new hypertension and he was like why is my blood pressure high and I said I don't know I'll see you in the clinic, and we'll try to figure it out. But I was wondering, as I was reading this chapter, maybe his baroreceptors are just not sensing things appropriately.
1: Maybe he's just trying to perfuse his brain like <laughs> to continue, right? Like, that's carotid artery, baroreceptor, appropriate response.
0: Yeah, I'd be careful about lowering his blood pressure.
3: <laughs> he may need that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well... Well, that was the school of thought before, right? Before, even in the 1920s, that you don't treat blood pressure, that this is okay, right? You have blood pressure of 200. You you just, you don't touch that. Mm -hmm. Um, Wait,
0: wait, Leticia, I've never heard this. Tell me, start that from the beginning of the thought.
3: Oh yeah, I have original papers when I give my hypertension talk, where the papers describe that a high blood pressure is actually the body's protective mechanism to ensure perfusion to vital organs, and so that this should not be treated. It was not until the like the '40s, I believe, cardiovascular events were linked to blood pressure, and over time, our goals for blood pressure have gone down. But initially, we we would not treat this. It was, and I believe for it was President Roosevelt the first one that his physician had made a statement saying like, no, this high blood Blood pressure, you have to let it be. This is this is okay. But
4: it was not just a 1940s Letty. actually. That went all the way to the 80s. Well, there's
0: the VA there's the VA cooperative trial from there's one in 68 and there's one in 72 in which they randomized and it's insane, right? They are randomizing patients with diastol diastolics of 110 to placebo or intervention.
1: And the intervention is like reserpine or something. It's not
0: well, and, and, and the intervention was whatever blood pressure, like they didn't specify which blood pressure, it was just lower, give them something. And yeah, and, they, and there were all kinds of crazy blood pressures of medicines that we never use. And they were able to show a mortality benefit with like two dozen people. In like six months, it was so, it was so incredibly effective, right? Cause these guys were just, you know, dying like flies with those, with those diastolic blood pressures.
3: It's just, it's just nice to so, see the history, to be honest, and see what it was. And it was a paper in 1937, this physician, Paul, uh, Paul Dudley White, who said, uh, hypertension may be an important compensatory mechanism, which should not be tampered with, even were it certain that we could control it because there were no meds, right? So the, we would treat hypertension with bloodletting, leeches, Sympathetic denervation, like it's just that fever-inducing medications. Like you were just basically making, uh, giving pyretics to basically, essentially lower the blood pressure.
0: JC, you were talking about the Shep trial. What's the Shep trial?
4: Yeah, the Shep trial, uh, to best of my recollection, was a randomized controlled trial in individuals with isolated systolic hypertension, primarily elderly patients, and the hypothesis was whether lowering the systolic was going to provide benefit and it did show a signal for reduction in stroke. Because at that time, there was the notion that, yeah, diastolic is bad, but if your systolic is 190 and your diastolic is 80, leave it alone. In fact, I can tell you that I have vivid memories visiting my grandmother and the doctor. This is like I was still in high school. The doctor will come and tell my grandmother uh, her blood pressure is 185 over 80. Do not do anything. Do not touch it. Do you not take medications this and that? And I have no idea why. I remember that. And later on, in medical school and residency, you know,
0: they came back to me. What
4: was this doctor doing to my grandma? But that was
0: right. That was right, and that VA Cooperative Study was not systolic. It Was they were randomized based on diastolic blood pressures. Exactly. That's interesting. So it was. Wow. The evolution in thought is just, it's it's fascinating. Then Rose moves on. He says, basically, effective circulating volume is related to extracellular uh, fluid volume, but there are some situations in which the effective circulating volume may be independent of the extracellular fluid volume. Plasma volume, or even cardiac output, which was actually was the one that made my eyes my eyes go up like, really? Cardiac output? I thought that would be a pretty good one. And then he walks through them. So in CHF, you have decreases in cardiac output, which lowers pressure at the baroreceptor. This leads to fluid and sodium retention. So you get a situation where you have decreased effective circulating volume with increased extracellular fluid volume. And then he points out that this is appropriate because the increased intracardiac filling pressure can be increased by increasing cardiac stretch, improve the contractility, and raise the cardiac output towards normal. What's that? What's that? What is that's a reflex, right? And out of that increased preload resulting in increased afterload. Isn't that that's like a, uh, isn't there an eponym for that? And if there is, nobody knows it. That's cool too. <laughs> <laughs> I wish
3: they, it, they should <laughs> see our faces like...
6: Shame on us for not recognizing or paying attention that this is a description of the Frank-Starling reflex, which is the notion that increasing ventricular volume, or left ventricular end-diastolic pressure, causes more stretching of muscle fibers and increases the force of the ventricular contraction, which thereby increases stroke volume and cardiac output.
7: I mean, the thing that bothers me about this whole pressure thing is that there's plenty of people with heart failure with a normal blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And so it just seems too simple that it's a pressure, but I don't know how else to explain it other than pressure and stretch. But to me, it's like, it's like a cardiac output that's perfusing and then you're okay.
1: I mean, you can have pressure without stretch, right? Like, you, if you have really calcified vessels, they're not going to stretch a whole lot. You can have pretty high. And then
0: pressure. I, I think we also need to be wary that the way we measure blood pressure is not necessarily how pressure is being detected by these baroreceptors. Which I guess is what Josh is saying. Like, we put a we put an elastic cuff on somebody's brachial artery, and we think we know what's going on in the baroreceptor. Maybe,
7: right? Maybe, maybe. Well, that that's kind of why I like flow better than pressure anyway, because flow is. Flow is ultimately going to determine perfusion, and 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 you have a pressure is what it senses. Let's
0: let's back up. We don't have any problem with this concept. We know. We agree that card that heart failure is a situation where you get decreased effective circulating volume and increased extracellular fluid volume. Right. That and and how we get there and what the specific mechanisms we can debate that. We can talk about that. But the reality is is that those two that dissociation between extracellular fluid volume and effective circulating volume does exist in this situation.
7: Absolutely. I just don't want to pretend that we know exactly how it works because uh, I'm not sure I know exactly how it works. So then he gives the example, the case where
0: the effective circulating volume can be independent of cardiac output. And when he wrote this, this one was causing me to scratch my head. I was like, what is he going to get to? I don't that one. That one, and then he was like an AV fistula. And I was like, Oh. An AV fistula. And he said, by definition, any flow through a fistula is not effective, which does seem like a little bit of bait and switch. He did say it was arterial blood volume, and that is arterial blood volume, but, <laughs> but apparently not in, not in Burton Rose's world. That is not effective by definition. And pa- and that what he says there is that patients will have this increased cardiac output, but a lot of this flow is going to be ineffective. And so they will have normal volemia despite this increased cardiac output.
7: That's kind of what I was saying. I mean, it's it's not, it has to be, in the end, it's perfusion. And then the last example
0: he gives is advanced cirrhosis and ascites. Here, the extracellular fluid is expanded because of the ascites. Plasma volume is expanded due to marked dilation but slowly circulating splanchnic venous circulation. So here's a perfect example when you say, oh, the vascular volume is increased. It's dramatically increased in cirrhosis. And there's also an elevated cardiac output because of multiple AV fistulas, such as spider angiomas. Like I knew that patients with cirrhosis had this elevated cardiac output. We see the hyperdynamic state that they're in, but I had never thought that the AV fistulas was the reason they had that elevated cardiac output with the decreased perfusion. So that was interesting to me. I hadn't put those things together.
1: I, I really like the way that he put together the AV fistula discussion, like we think of AV fistulas in dialysis patients and AV fistulas it's spider angiomotas and in other places in the cirrhotics. I think that that idea of like, there's a short circuit of blood flow here. You're not going through your normal resistance vessels. You're just going from high pressure arterial to low pressure venous without getting through a perfusion system it was really helpful to understanding there.
5: I have been taught about spider angiomas so many times. It's like a little quirky, like physically exam finding. I've never thought about that. Um, as, a, as many fistfills.
7: as
0: being hemodynamically significant that's exactly right. a quirky yes
5: i realized the ones on the skin might not be but
7: are there really a, are there really enough to do that or is it really and jc could probably answer is it really i don't know if splan- it literally it's, the ones you can see on the skin are but i mean but yeah but i mean i thought it was the splanchnic shunting that's really the, the major source of the of the low resistance and and jc you, you this is kind of your field
4: yeah no i i was also um intrigued about that sentence uh, because every time you read about a hyperdynamic circulation and cirrhosis because of this um, uh, pooling of blood and uh, peripheral vasodilation, the explanation is that the heart tries to compensate by increasing cardiac output. There isn't discussion about these spider angiomas. I mean, they probably play a role as well, but... I didn't never saw that as a primary mechanism driving high output heart failure in cirrhosis. I thought
7: the the a lot of that high output heart failure in cirrhosis is is all in the splenic system anyway, and obviously, but not the kidneys because of you know the the dynamics that we see with in cirrhosis.
0: But the idea that you can you can't infinitely dilate the splenic vessels, right? Eventually, you would have to fill them. Like that's what I like about the idea that these AV fistulas, because that is just ineffective circulation. And that that's something that even though you can increase cardiac output, yeah. it just doesn't go anywhere, or not effectively.
4: And just to go back to this discussion earlier about the, the statement of intravascular volume depletion, where do we say that or where do we hear that in clinical grounds? It's typically in a patient that is edematous and maybe hypovolemic, and we say, Yeah, this patient is intravascular volume depleted. My concern is that that may be translation, translated into thinking that the intravascular space is depleted and the interstitial space is expanded. And I, I I think there's not really that dissociation. The intravascular space, it is not depleted. It's actually massive volume buildup in, in, in the venous circulation that is just ineffective because it's vasodilated.
0: So he- he closes out this area cirrhosis and says, these patients behave as volume depleted as a result of the marked vasodilation. They have reduced systemic vascular resistance. They have reduced blood pressure. They have low rates of urinary sodium excretion and progressive increases in hormones related to hypovolemia. He lists out ADH, renin, and norepinephrine. Read him. Oh, my God. (laughs) Thank you. This is the curse of a person who learned everything by reading and never went to lecture.
5: You mean writing? Wow. Wow.
0: (laughs) Who invited you? (laughs) (laughs) Progressive increase in hormones related to hypovolemia, ADH, renin, and norepinephrine. And then... In conclusion for this thing about effective circulating volume, and we'll be moving on from this, he says, effective circulating volume is an unmeasured entity. So it's this theoretical construct. We were talking about this earlier. It reflects tissue perfusion. It may be independent of other hemodynamic parameters, but it is diagnosed by demonstrating a low urine sodium that, that that he emphasizes that outside of a few scenarios, which we're going to talk about, there's a one-to-one ratio between a decreased effective circulating volume and a low urine sodium. He draws the line at below 15 to 20. My hospital doesn't even measure it below 20. I can get a urine potassium down to one milliequivalent per liter, but my urine sodium stops at less than 20. What do you guys get?
7: Same thing. We used to, years ago, we'd have a better, but now it's just less than 20.
0: But the exceptions are. So the times when the urine sodium will lie to you and not be a clairvoyant indicator of the effect of circulating volume are if you're using a diuretic or if you have kidney disease, which is important that the urine sodium not helpful if you have kidney disease. I don't know if you ever see those patients, but you need to be careful about that situation. <laughs>
7: Uh, You know, that's true of AKI, but you know, in CKD, if you wait long enough and on assault restriction, you can get your sodium down pretty low so it may take a while and it may you may still get volume depleted in the meantime but it's not 100 the case with ckd that you can't get a low urine sodium if you're volume depleted but certainly in aki it's unreliable and like you said you know diuretics or maybe salt wasting. an in acute
0: life. glomerular disease and bilateral renal vascular disease and i believe when he says renal disease i think he is talking about kind of a, a your barter syndrome your Gittelman syndrome your salt wasting nephropathies maybe advanced ckd i don't know that's interesting
7: I, i'm glad you brought a, a QGN, Because I think that's vastly underappreciated that uh, how, how just how salt retentive you can be in a QGN, And it, it is acting like bilateral renal artery stenosis. You know, I've always kind of explained it that the glomerulus is all plugged up and can't get blood through there. But I don't. I think that's a way oversimplification. But, you know, we certainly see it. We see it in the kids that have post-strep GN. They come in with hypertension and pulmonary congestion and even heart failure or fluid overload with a normal heart because they retain so much salt water purely from their GN. With metabolic
4: alkalosis, Mentioned uh, also as a state where urine sodium is. He stevenous. does not mention. That's a good one, though. No. I think they met, he mentioned. It yeah, it definitely comes chapters, up in other places, but, but I don't. also another. Yeah, I guess the idea would be that in that setting, uh, sodium is being excreted with bicarbonate, and chloride becomes a better indicator of, of good call. Good call.
2: Until you're really volume depleted, and then it's useful again. Exactly. I mean, it has to always be in context, right? I mean, like your urine sodium will be low or high on any given day, depending on what you're eating. So it depends on the context.
7: I want to, I want to reiterate what I think Joel said. In summary, the effective circulating volume is an unmeasured entity that reflects tissue perfusion. That's the point I've been trying to make all along. It's It's not pressure. It's ultimately... These organs have to be perfused, and I don't know if that how the body figures it out so well, but it's really good at it, and it tells the kidney what to do. And that's why their urine sodium is so reliable in the situations other than where we don't get fooled by it. So the next section of the
0: chapter is called Effective Circulating Volume, Renal Sodium Excretion, and the Steady State. And he says that changes in effective circulating volume cause changes in urinary sodium and that that allows you to restore normal effective circulating volume. If it gets decreased, you will retain sodium. That will increase your extracellular fluid volume, which then will increase your effective circulating volume. Likewise, when you get volume expanded, you will spill excess sodium, reduce your extracellular fluid volume, and decrease your effective circulating volume. Okay. And so he talks that that there's an increase in volume after a sodium load, which is very common, or a closing of an AV fistula. I have in parentheses, weirdly rare. We don't close. We don't close a lot of AV fistulas.
7: I think that refers not so much to the dialysis fistulas as you know some of these old traumatic ones that people would find, and they get high output heart failure and all the hemodynamics associated with it. And you close it, and suddenly you've got normal hemodynamics, and you'll have a, you know you'll have a diuresis then.
1: Melanie, because I think you're probably the person who knew Bud in person the best of any of us. Was he a person who would like go and close AV fistulas on people more often than regular nephrologists, or is this just something no. he was like, at, like an intellectually? Interesting I
2: think period? it was intellectual. I mean, when I knew Bud, at that point he did service a few weeks a year, and at the bedside was very humble because he wasn't doing a lot of clinical medicine and would defer, you know, to us. So
0: well, one of my hero moments as a doctor is we had a patient that came out of transplant surgery and was hypotensive and they, they were trying to move her to the floor and get him out of the ICU. And I was like, why don't we, why don't we close off that fistula? And like the patient's blood pressure was 90 and I put my finger on it. And the blood pressure popped up 20 points. I was like, I think this is the problem. Right. <laughs> and sure enough, while that fistula, the patient got better real
3: quick. I've never seen a case of that, actually.
0: He then, I thought, was a, this was a beautiful description of what happens with an increased sodium intake. So if you have an increased sodium intake on a patient on a low-sodium diet, so you know, imagine a low-sodium diet, you bump up their sodium intake, He says that half the sodium is, is excreted in that first day. So you clear out half that sodium load, but the other half is going to be retained. And that increased retention is going to increase the serum osmolality, and that's going to lead to an increase in ADH. That's going to lead to an increase in thirst. The increased ingestion of water is an increase to their volume, is increase to their body weight, and is going to restore or increase their effective circulating volume. So that that'll straightforward. I think I might have mis- I think I misspoke there. I, I really impl- the increase in, in the effective circulating volume, and the increase in extracellular volume, is just related to the, the retained sodium. You only got rid of half that sodium in the first day. The other half is retained. That retention is going to increase the osmolality increase the adh you're going to retain water and you're going to add additional water due to thirst
7: and as long as you're on that high sodium diet you will have you will be in steady state but you'll be at steady state at a higher total body sodium which means a higher total extracellular fluid volume which will translates into higher extra effective circulating volume you know and you'll stay there until you until you drop that sodium right.
0: it says by day three or four there's a new steady state that's acquired at which point the sodium in is going to equal the sodium out at the expense of a mild increase in the effective circulating volume, and that increase in circulating volume is going to result in the increased blood pressure that we normally associate with an increased sodium intake.
5: Well, with the asterisk of the space station people, right? Didn't we talk about Geneseek work a couple of weeks ago? It's not sodium in and sodium, not necessarily. It's
0: Jens teaches stuff. Absolutely, <laughs> throws a bomb in all of this stuff. I kept thinking about that as I was reading that. That his stuff is totally revolutionary. It breaks really fundamental concepts of what this stuff is based on. It re- it's amazing.
7: I don't think you you could say it that, that you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, I, I think that this stuff's still there. It just tells that those experiments tell it that it's a little more, a little more complicated.
0: Yeah, than but it it, it breaks yeah. fundamental yeah. rules. Right, one of the fundamental rules is that all of the exchangeable sodium is kept at an osmolality of 280, right? And Jens Tietze's stuff says, ah, not really. There is a large pocket of exchangeable sodium that is essentially crystalline sodium, right? It's it's not it's a much much higher sodium concentration which allows these astronauts to retain not a few milliequivalents, literally grams and grams of sodium um what is it? It's like In the in the in his original space station study, which was from the early '90s, it was four thousand millimoles that these patients retained in a in a couple of months. I mean, it's in that's more than the total body sodium they were able to retain without any increase in body weight. Like it's it the 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 absolute volume or mass of sodium that's retained is crazy. And, 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 you know, and again, you know, the answer is it's another compartment that we hadn't, you know, when we think of, when we rose, it's a three compartment model, right? You have the intracellular, the extracellular, which is then divided into the in, uh, intravascular and interstitial. And Tiza stuff says, and there's another compartment, call it skin, cause it proteoglycans, whatever you want to call it, that's a totally separate and previously undefined. And we don't have any rules to govern how it works, or we're starting to build those rules at least. It really, it, it. I, I get what you're saying, Roger. Like, and I, and I agree that you can model most of what goes on with ignoring this other compartment. But it really, to, to some degree, you do have to throw out the baby with this bathwater. It really is a profoundly change, a profound change.
7: Yeah, but I just think we have to be careful as educators that you know that we have to give somebody. You have to have something to hang your hat on, and then you can have your little caveats. That's all I'm saying. I, 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 I Agreed. We uh, it, it, We're at.
5: I'm just being provocative because the night hasn't gotten
0: old. Too. Yeah, that's right. Because we're only three pages in after an hour. I can see why you <laughs> want to be provocative. We should talk about a meal ride. <laughs>
2: yeah. Wait, but the other, the other issue with the other issue with Tzitzi is that maybe um, what we've been doing is too short because he had them on this very high salt diet for a long time, and you know had this weird sort of, I don't know, almost lunar 28-day uh, rhythm that the patients experienced. And so I think that maybe it's not, maybe they're both true, um, but we were just didn't look yeah, long and to enough.
0: Emphasize exactly what, this is, this is the, the large point that Jens makes when he gives his talks over and over again, is that all these studies that we look at where we built our three compartment model were like three days long, seven days long, 14 days long, he's like, hey, we have this salt ingestion for years and decades. And he does studies that are months and months long and finds things that we had never even seen. And exactly what Melanie says, that there's these cycles that go on these 28-day cycles that no one had any idea of, where people are sodium positive and then sodium negative and then sodium positive. And the interesting thing about those cycles is that if they're not in sync If you do a large population studies, which we've done over and over again, where we take, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 people, we measure their 24 hour urine sodiums or first morning sodiums. If they're not in sync, we wouldn't even pick it up because one person would cancel out
1: another person.
2: All right. Thank goodness.
1: But really, there's a a physiology here that you can imagine 10, 20 years from now, if there's some way to modify how much sodium you deposit in this magical crystalline space of sodium. You could totally I think change that should have, what it should be called. I think works. this
0: fourth compartment should be called the magical crystalline sodium compartment. <laughs> as, 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 as I think that was a campaign I ran in <laughs> Advanced Dungeons and Dragons in seventh grade, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, you not, now you need to tell me, what was the name of your character in Dungeons
1: and Dragons? I did not play Dungeons and Dragons. I was not that kind of a nerd. Amy, your your character?
0: <laughs> I played once with my husband, no, so. No, no character name that you can remember?
6: No character name, not. Gc
0: as you're shaking your head, <laughs> nothing?
6: I don't even know what oh you're God. talking Roger, me. nothing.
0: <laughs> Melanie. Oh, nothing. Oh my you're God. You're like the
1: king of the Anna, nerds. Your you your character You just knighted yourself. Oh. You know I
6: didn't play Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> what was yours, Joel?
1: Barlow, Barlow, Kester, seventh level
0: assassin. Yeah, pretty cool guy.
6: <laughs>
0: He's so proud. I, well,
5: yeah. Easy there, Josh. Proud our proud knees proud. are getting weak.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're done with that. I thought that was gonna be. Fu- I thought that was gonna be a fun diversion. Actually, Joel's a huge nerd and nobody else is. <laughs> <hates laughs> I get it. I get it. I'm cool. <laughs>
8: we're like what's a Pokemon? Joel? Uh, wow. That's, that's
0: <laughs> okay. What? Okay. So figure figure eight. Okay, so 8.1 shows this change in sodium balance and the change in weight. I don't what Anybody know what's going on in figure 8.1? Anybody want to talk about that? You already yeah. went through okay.
4: that it's uh, just, yeah. uh, figure. It's just a graph that explains how uh, the sodium intake leads to – you lose 50% of the sodium intake in the beginning, and then progressively uh, the increase in plasma osmolality leads to activation of ADH and water retention and – and weight gain.
0: Okay, and so the clinical the, the clinical correlation that he then pointed out was diuretics. And so we were just talking about an increase in sodium intake. Diuretics run the same experiment in reverse. Diuretics immediately increase sodium excretion. You get this initial diuresis that lowers the extracellular fluid volume. That activates the renin angiotensin system. And that he says that assuming the dose is constant all the sodium losses in the first seven to 14 days with maximal response really in the first few days
1: and this is really like the physiologic basis of the breaking effect that you see like the most sodium removal from the body on the first dose of diuretic the second most of the second by the time you're getting the later doses you're really not getting effective sodium removal from the body anymore Later on, you get like upregulation of distal tubule sodium reabsorption, and, and kind of compensatory mechanisms to help retain sodium for folks who are on diuretics chronically.
7: I think it's a really important point that a lot of f- physicians don't quite realize that, you know, that diuretics don't always diurese you. They, you know, they basically get you to a new, lower total body sodium, and then they keep you there. But if you are always in a negative sodium balance, you disappear. So it's the opposite of, you know, salt loading and you get this new sodium balance and at a higher total body sodium. Diuretics get you to a lower total body sodium and then keep you there.
0: Only if you stay on that same diuretic dose, right? Right. So
5: one of the questions I ask my patients always in clinic is, "Are you ta- like, are you taking your water pill? And if so, are you having a response to it? Like, are you noticing a response to it if they're on a loop diuretic? and sometimes they'll say, "Mm, not really, but those aren't always the patients who seem to be volume overloaded. Is that because of how much they're eating? Is that assuming that their sodium intake is the same as what it was when I prescribed that diuretic dose, and if they're eating less sodium, then maybe they're not having a noticeable response, but they're staying uvilemic? Is that what that means?
7: I think that's probably
0: what it means. Because it
5: always is concerning to me when they say, not really.
0: I think that's the natural history of diuretics, is that after a couple of weeks, yeah. it, it, that that phenomenon disappears, even if they keep taking it.
5: Unless they're eating progressive amounts of sodium, yeah.
0: right? Okay. And then he points out that, though we've walked through the story for sodium, that the same situation exists with other electrolytes. He, said he gives the example of an increased potassium intake will initially increase your potassium excretion leave patients then with a small increase in serum potassium. It's then you get matched potassium intake and potassium excretion with an increase in aldosterone as a consequence. And then he has this beautiful conclusion where he says, the capacity to excrete sodium, potassium, bicarbonate, and water is so great in normal subjects that in order for you to get disorders here, you must have some kidney disease. And he talks about too much sodium results in edema. too much potassium results in hyperkalemia, too much bicarbonate results in metabolic alkalosis, and too much water results in hyponatremia. And none of them can persist unless there's an abnormality in the renal excretion of that substance, that the kidney is totally capable of clearing all these substances under normal circumstances, and it requires some sort of some sort of kidney disease, some sort of disorder of the normal regulation in order to have these persistent abnormalities. Yeah, this is, uh, th- I find
4: this sentence also extremely, extremely important. Let's say a patient has hyperkalemia, and one of the first things that come out, well, this patient is probably eating too much potassium in a diet. And immediately, like, whoa, 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 that should not be your first thought. The kidneys are way better than that. Go, I say, i go ahead, go start drinking three liters of a smoothie banana right now. I guarantee that you'll pee all the K out. So it's only when the kidney has an impairment in the ability to get free potassium when you will see any relationship with the intake of potassium. And the same goes with alkalosis, as he says here, that, you know, we see alkalosis sort of perpetuated when the patient has... Volume depletion or AKI. And the last example of hyponatremia, psychogenic polydipsia. You drink 15 liters of water, you pee 15 liters of water. So I think that this is a very, I, I love this paragraph.
5: But I think also in saying that you do, if the person is showing you hyperkalemia in the face of whatever intake they have, then that's demonstrating they have some CKD, and then you do need to counsel them about their diet, right? It's just not that you can blame that.
4: I, I'm not going to argue that it's not playing any role whatsoever, but I don't think it's going to be the primary driver. Right. If you're talking about a CKD patient, most likely it's because that particular CKD patient is on an ACE inhibitor and an ARB, or, that, or is a diabetic with type 4 RTA, or is a transplant patient
0: on TACRO. There's
4: something they else took it usually...
0: Yes. Yeah, I think I think we way overestimate the importance of dietary indiscretion when we talk about hyperkalemia. I think that is a crutch that we reach for and is not supported with good empiric data. Melanie, you're nodding your head. Do you have any thoughts here? Ready to
2: move forward. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the next section, big section, all caps, regulation of the effective circulating volume. Two step response. First you have change is detected by your volume receptors and then these receptors activate a series of effectors that restore normal volemia by varying the vascular resistance, the cardiac output, the renal sodium excretion and the renal water excretion. So the first, he talks about the volume receptors. What are the receptors here? We have three of them. We have the carotid sinuses, the aortic arch baroreceptors, and the afferent glomerular arterioles. And again, going back to what we talked about earlier, though volume is regulated, what is being sensed is pressure or stretch. And this allows effective volume control since pressure and volume are usually related.
1: I think this is a part I kind of went deep on and got excited about. So I was really curious about how the carotid bear receptors and the glomerular arteriola receptors sense volume. And there's a really nice paper from 2018 that we can put in the show notes that identifies piezo channels as the molecular sensor for neurons sensing blood pressure and volume status. So these are stretch-activated ion channels that are present in the neurons that innervate the carotid sinus and other bear receptors. And when they're pulled on by the membrane stretch, they actually open up and allow for ion channel currents to pour into this cell and innervate downstream signaling. So these are really interesting channels, really newly described channels, that are helping us understand the physiologic sensing of volume status. And this really gets back to what Roger was talking about earlier, I think if we're wondering about how the body senses perfusion, it's really through a sense of stretch of the blood vessel. And if folks have high blood pressure with limited stretch of the artery, like really calcified arteries that don't stretch anymore, they may not get that piezo stretch sensor response, but they may still have a high blood pressure, which really corresponds to the people we see with high blood pressure and poor perfusion.
0: He points to these different points of, of sensing. He has the afferent glomerular arterioles. And he also points out that possibly the macula densa cells of the early distal tubule will also contribute here. And these mainly affect renin, angiotensin, and aldosterone system through mediators endothelin and nitric oxide. And that's interesting because the extrarenal renal receptors primarily govern the sympathetic nervous system and ANP. So what's going on in the kidney is going to be regulating your renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system. And outside of the kidney, more the sympathetic nervous system and atrial natriuretic peptide. And then he goes into immersion in neck-deep water, which was super, super interesting. He says that when you immerse people in neck-deep water, the hydrostatic pressure moves fluid from the legs into the chest, and that's going to activate these baroreceptors, and that's going to result in increased sodium excretion, increased water excretion. Decrease in aldosterone, increase in ANP, and what was I thought was so interesting is if you do this in patients with cirrhosis, you'll get an increase in urine output in, cirrh- in cirrhosis, pointing to the fact. That it's a functional effect that this is that the decreased urine output and the very very low sodium that you see in cirrhosis is entirely due to this d- decreased activation of these baroreceptors in the the kidney and in the aortic arch and the, the carotid sinuses, indicating that it's, you know there's nothing there's not like a specific toxin that's poisoning the kidney that's causing this. that This is all uh, a hemodynamic response.
5: So why is it so hard to get people to do leg wrap? They're uncomfortable. No no no, like to have them applied in the hospital. Like no, I understand. <laughs> Know,
7: okay. Well, the, the the one thing about leg wraps is they they may push it up, they may push it up, but there's still other places it can mm-hmm. accumulate. Whereas when you immerse somebody in water, it's basically a total body wrap except for their head. And so that's why it works so much better. The question I have about this is that, forgive me, but it's the underfill, overfill cirrhotic story. I'm conflicted here, and I'll uh, give me a second. But you know, we used to think that uh, patients had cirrhosis and they had portal hypertension. They put fluid in their belly, and then they were intravascularly depleted, and so the kidney would then retain sodium. That was the underfill, and of course, the overfill is that there's primary salt retention in cirrhosis, and it ends up in the belly because of portal hypertension. And with most these things, underfill has has not been really shown. It's certainly the case with nephrotic syndrome and, and, and renal disease, et cetera. And I thought that for cirrhosis, a lot of these patients really, it was overfill and not underfill. But the fact if you can water submerge somebody and increase their intravascular volume, I mean, basically when you water submerge somebody, you're giving them an autosaline bolus. And they'll diurese it implies that there isn't, in some of these patients, it's underfill. And if you look at figure 8,4B, 84A shows normal people. You immerse them and their urine sodium goes up and then you take them out of water and their urine sodium. Right, but
0: hold hold on just a second. I just want to I wanna take a look at 84A for a little bit longer because it is an incredibly impressive figure. So first of all, I wanna emphasize you don't just dip them in the water for a minute, right? To get peak urinary sodium, <laughs> they need to be in the water for four hours. And if you read the research on this studies, one of the big difficulties is people slough their skin. There's all this skin irritation from people being in the water for so damn long. Okay, so that's one thing. The technical term is prune. They're way beyond, they're, they've they gone past pruney. They, they now have an ICD-9 code for it, okay? <laughs> And then the other, the other part that's super, and I think it must be a typo. I can't even believe this. But the peak urinary sodium excretion is 400 milliequivalents per minute, and I see Roger shaking his head. That's, yeah, that's impossible. No, it's, impossible. it's, it's <laughs> micro. It's micro. It's micro equivalents. Oh, thank God. It's, oh my God. It's So we we're only off by a factor of a thousand. That's much more helpful. Okay. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. But
2: can I tell you, I think this is real. I love swimming. It's my happy place. I'm not that great at it. And like, you know, in adulthood, learned how to swim the fly and it's not pretty. And I always joke that I drink a lot of water during, because I pee for hours after I swim. And I always joke, oh, I must be drinking so much of the pool. But in fact, (laughs) I'm not.
4: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, it's your central blood volume has been redistributed and, and that's probably what happens. You
7: I love talking to the residents about this. I say, you know, if you, have you ever noticed when you go swimming you have to pee, it's it's not a coincidence. And so we talk about the physiology of putting fluid intravascularly. It's like being in a total body wrap. But I think the opposite happens when we go up in an airplane. I I notice when I go flying, I don't pee. I I feel terrible. I feel like I've uh, retained fluid and my fingers swell and everything and I think it's the opposite even though it's in it's a it's a it's a mile high but I, I think it's it's basically the opposite uh, you get a little you get pooling and everything and then so you start retaining sodium you, you go swimming you gotta pee and, and Melanie says it I mean she pees like crazy it's not because she's aspirating all this water it's because she's
5: you see me fly
7: the question Melanie is do you pee in the pool no you don't to. <laughs> she,
5: she would never we
2: could do a study. It could be the anti-diuresis of quiet flying.
7: There have been studies of urea in pools. Oh, no. <gasps> it is not insignificant. It's quite significant, the urea concentration.
0: Roger's talking about going into an airplane, but the real issue is going into space. So if you go into zero G, that's like the ultimate pool. And they get tremendous amount of movement of fluid back into the central. It, increases, it activates these baroreceptors, and they have... Tremendous increases in the suppression of renin and increased urinary sodium and loss of weight that a lot of the weight loss that astronauts hap- have is just loss of sodium and water from centralization of their fluid when they lose gravity pulling the fluid down into their legs. And according to According to Murray, Murray. Epstein, Epstein. that a lot of the real resurgent in interest into head out of water immersion came after this observation during spaceflight. And they were like, we got to be able to recreate this on the ground. And it's really hard to f- isolate gravity. And the best way to isolate, to remove gravity from an experimental condition was this um, immersion.
1: And sorry, just to be clear so that we outline this for folks who are listening, the idea of water immersion or spaceflight is that it really shifts the balance of fluids in the body toward effective circulating volume so that less of that blood is pooling in the venous system, more of it is squished through the heart and into the arterial volume so that more of that volume is stretching bare receptors, perfusing the kidney, and allowing for more urine output.
0: Perfect. Thanks, thanks, Josh. That's exactly right.
1: Amy, do you want to get us on track again?
6: I guess I can let Roger finish this point, but I think I understand what he's trying to say is that in figure 8.4b, how if you notice some of the serotics when you immerse them in water, they had this naturesis effect and then some of them didn't. And so that kind of implies that maybe not all of them are what we considered underfilled or that even among the cirrhotic patients, their physiology is a little bit different.
4: Yeah. I mean, the development of a D-minus cirrhotic is not just a single mechanism. You have the release of, you know, you have a stiff liver that leads to release of nitric oxide and pooling of blood in the circulation, and then you have uh, sort of that state of, of peripheral vasodilation. Uh, you have the hypovolemic state as well. And this experiment is addressing this sort of hemodynamic component but you also have patients that have portal hypertension, even portal vein thrombosis is found in a, in a significant percentage of patients with cirrhosis. You can also have portal pulmonary hypertension which is also going to impact development of edema. So it's not surprising that in this experiment, they have sort of a significant variability in how these erotics responded uh, to uh, to this. Well, and
0: then I, wanna, of- I also want to point out in eight four that eight four b the y axis is twice as wide as the it is in eight four a, right? It goes up to five hundred in 84 four a, and it only goes up to two fifty. In eight four B, which is really a deceptive way to present this data. You really want to show that people with cirrhosis, even even the few patients that responded beautifully to it, had about half the response to normal patients. So these patients are naturally yeah, but very those
1: curves are still still going up at the end of the five hours, right? So you don't know where they'd be in ten hours. I mean, you could just soak them in a pool overnight with their head above the water. They could be just <laughs> salting out <laughs> overnight. It'd be great.
4: Yeah, but that was the other part of the experiment in terms of the the, the rapidity of the response and the and the healthy uh, patients. Not only did they have a greater degree of, of natural resistance, but it was a lot yeah. quicker. And the cirrhotic they have to wait all the way to four hours. But these experiments were very exciting at that time and it actually led to a couple of small Uh, case reports in patients with hepatorenal syndrome because they thought, okay, maybe this is the way we're going to make these patients urinate. There is one case report from Bob Schreier. It didn't work. They put this patient on a five-hour head-of-water immersion. And there's another case report out of Switzerland with two patients, and they claim that they made the patients uh, better. And of course, uh, the probably publication bias, you know, we haven't heard from any other Swiss paper since the 90s, so it probably doesn't work well.
6: I think treating and understanding HRS patients is very, very tricky because they all look volume overloaded, but I don't, part of me thinks some of them actually probably has a little bit of relative heart failure. Maybe their cardiac output just isn't able to match up and they're actually venous congested rather than some of them actually being uh, what we say like underfilled. And so, you know, I think this figure really demonstrates the challenge that we see clinically with these patients.
7: So I think what we should do is put them all in a bathtub and give them tur- <laughs> Well, and I th- I, I, But we'll think, I bases. think this was so
0: beautifully demonstrated in the most recent New England Journal of Medicine papers on the renal syndrome and albumin infusions, in which both, these proto- both the studies had these protocols where they just opened up the tap and flooded these patients. And we saw a high degree of pulmonary edema that is not something that is normally described as an outcome in these trials. And these patients were, I mean, they had terrible outcomes from some of these patients from really aggressive albumin infusions. And I think... My suspicion, again, not being an HRS specialist, is that we're going to see the pendulum turn the other way and people are going to be a little bit more cautious in terms of use of albumin. JC, do you want to comment on that? I absolutely agree with that comment, Joel. And
4: I think one important concept to understanding in AKI and cirrhosis is it is true that albumin is a more effective volume expander than saline. It has been shown in in small clinical studies in cirrhotics. are volume depleted but the problem is that when we see those patients in a hospital most of the times they are not volume depleted they call us day four or five into the hospital stay they're massively hypervolemic so the idea that giving more albumin is going to provide additional benefit to the kidneys is flawed and at that point the peripheral vessel, they have a lot of pulling of blood at that state. The patients are now and depleted, so there isn't really a gain in kidney function. This is when patients start getting uh, more and more albumin and get in
0: trouble. Okay. So we talked about the sensors. So the other half of that game is the effectors, two major ones. One of them is the sympathetic nervous system, and that is going to be directly through the secretion of catecholamines from the adrenal medulla norepinephrine and epinephrine. That will trigger venous constriction. It'll increase myocardial contractility. It'll increase the heart rate and increase arteriolar contraction. One of the other effects of the sympathetic nervous system is to stimulate renin secretion. And that renin secretion will then cause uh, sodium retention. And then he gives a really interesting story. He talks about Patients that have a blunted t- or dysfunctional sympathetic nervous system that donate blood and how they have this profound hypotensive experience. I see Melody laughing about that. Melody, you want to talk about that for a moment?
2: Well, you just can't make this stuff up. That's why I love this. That was figure eight, six already. And I, actually, I was thinking about that when you were talking about how much blood one could lose and what what constitutes actual intravascular volume depletion? I think this would. So in the figure, we see over just a half an hour, this patient, I guess, donates about 500 or they withdraw 500 mLs of blood. And then you see that the blood pressure and the heart rate plummet very quickly as the blood is coming out of the patient, and then when they put the blood back in, it goes right back up. So I thought that was
0: kind of right. crazy. This is a patient whose sympathetic nervous system is either blocked or dysfunctional, right? Idiopathic mm-hmm. autonomic
7: insufficiency. So the pulse didn't change, right? Yeah, same thing. Pulse pulse is stable. Blood pressure drops, and then they get all oh, right. Get the blood Sorry, right pulse. And then the blood pressure. Sorry, back. you're right.
2: Pulse is stable. And actually, he makes that point. And I think that's part of one of the points he's trying to make because yeah. on that page or two before, he mentions the fact that some of these responses happen even in patients who've been denervated.
4: Yeah, the, you, the normal response would be the, so
0: see the pulse. But that depends on an intact sympathetic pain. nervous system. And the fat, and this uh-huh. patient can't respond to that decrease in volume with an increase in heart rate, which is what would be required part of the response that you would you would expect to see with this decrease in volume. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff.
7: You know, Joel, you uh, just to go back for one second the, uh, you know, the effectors and the the the, the cool. I I just can't. Stress enough how cool it is that RENA not only leads to sodium retention, but it also leads to angiotensin 2, which is a potent vasoconstrictor. It's got this amazing dual effect that's protecting our blood pressure, which is what it's all about in the end. You know, no blood pressure, no life. Yeah, we,
4: we mentioned this in a previous episode, Roger, how angiotensin II is so versatile, retains sodium, increases vascular tone, activates vasopressin, and it also increases the red cell mass as well. So that also. Uh, affects your sort of your tissue perfusion, so it's really an incredible hormone,
7: and it increases proximal sodium reabsorption by uh, increasing the filtration fraction. So
0: another one of these one of these experiments where he tries to disable the ability to sense is uh, is shown in Figure eight seven. So now we're talking about the the kidneys' response to volume depletion. We have a constriction in the thoracic aorta. Thoracic so IVC.
2: Sorry. No, it's the IVC. So, walk me through it. So there's a decreased return.
0: Melody, walk 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 us through eight seven. What's going on in eight seven?
2: This is a, a was a sort of common convention that they would constrict the uh, thoracic IVC, so then there would be less blood return to the heart, and then from that there would be a decrease in cardiac output because of the decrease in return. Okay, so
0: a decrease return to the heart that's going to decrease your cardiac output. The response to that is going to be an increase in plasma renin activity. That's going to result in an increase in aldosterone, which is shown beautifully. They get an, an acute and immediate drop in urinary sodium in response to that angiotensin II. And they get a progressive increase in plasma volume until eventually they overcome this constriction, right? They get enough plasma volume that they, that they get good return to the heart. And once that happens then you see a, an immediate drop in renin drop in aldosterone increase in urinary sodium so that your sodium intake again, once again matches it's going to be you get an increase in urinary sodium so once again your urinary sodium matches your your dietary intake of sodium you go back into balance once again at a higher total plasma volume which is beautifully drawn in the in the last line The last little graph in um, figure 8-7, where you reestablish homeostasis, but at a higher plasma volume.
1: Josh, you had a thought? This is like a beautiful figure. It's like looking at a score for a symphony and seeing all the parts happen in order, exactly coming in on time. Right when one stimulus ends, the next thing comes in. Right when your plasma volume recovers, your renin drops, your aldosterone drops, your sodium excretion increases. And you get the perfect timing of the perfect responses of the system we've gone through piece by piece. It's just really cool, and it's nice to see them all lined up in this way.
0: He doesn't draw it out in a graph, but he describes another experiment where the constriction on the inferior vena cava is so severe that it can't be overcome by increasing the volume. And he says you just get progressive increases in volume over and over again. It never restores cardiac output, and these hopefully... Not people, but test <laughs> subjects and dogs or mice <laughs> or what have you, ultimately get pulmonary edema. And, and dogs, dogs, dogs. Get pul- I know it's, it's they're Anna. They're hypothetical dogs. They're not real dogs. <laughs> they're not real <laughs> dogs because <laughs> no one would do that to a dog, right? <laughs> Regulation of renal sodium excretion. With increased effective circulating volume, urine sodium can exceed a hundred milliequivalents per liter. I think we've all seen that, though it's rare, but we do see that. And that with decreased effective circulating volume, it can fall to one milliequivalent per liter, which was eye popping because, as, as I mentioned, my hospital doesn't go below twenty. So, what are the mechanisms? How do we how do we regulate the renal sodium excretion? And he points to one way is. A weak effect is just the GFR. That an increased effective circular volume, you'll get a modest increase in GFR. With a decrease in effective circular volume, you'll get a modest decrease in GFR. And that will contribute to changes in sodium handling. But he says that GFR is not required for changes in sodium excretion, and I think that Roger pointed this out earlier. He thought how oh, remarkable, even at very low GFRs, you are able to maintain sodium handling pretty surprisingly effectively. I love this line: even patients right down to near ESRD are able to maintain sodium balance.
7: It is amazing that you can see people that you know their creatinine's five and and or rather creatinine's ten and their clearance is five and they. They, are, they may have a normal blood pressure. and They may have an absolutely no edema. It's a remarkable thing. But, you know, you're filtering enough, even at a GFR of 10 or 5, you're filtering a lot of sodium. So you, it's not that hard if you can just, you know, dump one once in a while.
0: And then he talks about the importance of glomerular tubular balance. This is something we've talked about before, in which primary changes in GFR lead to parallel changes in tubular reabsorption, keeping those things in balance, and therefore relatively little variation in urinary sodium excretion. So, just kind of this is actually kind of the opposite of sodium balance being related to GFR, which we talked about early just a moment ago. Here he's saying actually most of it is just reabsorb or excrete fixed fraction of the fluid that is presented and this is what we see in the distal convoluted tubule and the loop of henley have mostly flow dependent reabsorption of sodium fixed fraction The sodium, and that the neurohormonal regulation of sodium primarily occurs in the proximal tubule in the collecting duct. So the very beginning and the very end, the sodium handling is is regulated by nerves and the hormones. We've talked about the the importance of angiotensin 2 and sodium reabsorption in the proximal tubule. Then we have aldosterone acting in the collecting duct. But he says that the data, and that's for really large changes in sodium, but for day-to-day changes in sodium uh, mostly this is going to be uh, handled by AMP and aldosterone. And then Matt, uh, Rose goes through a fun math problem looking at the daily GFR. Says the daily GFR is 160 liters a day. And if your sodium is 150, that comes out to a filtered load of 24,000 milliequivalents of sodium a day. And if your sodium intake is only 120 milliequivalents a day, that gives you a fractional excretion of sodium of 0.5%. And if you were to increase that sodium intake from 120 to 180, that will force you to increase your fractional nutrition of sodium to from 0.5 to 0.67. And the point of this exercise is to show that your kidney is exquisitely sensitive. Its ability to adjust the handling of sodium at this very fry, fine degree of control is impressive, right? What we're doing, we're talking literally talking about changing it by one sodium molecule in a thousand, kicking that up, and it does that just fine. And in fact, if it was unable to do that, it would be a lethal change, right? In this example, you would retain sodium and get fluid overload. Like It really is. It's amazing how sensitive it can be.
2: You know this chapter, when I looked at this chapter, I thought, oh, 20 pages, easy. I, and I don't even know if I ever even read this chapter before. And there are, and actually that was way better than I thought. And f- first of all, of course, the immersion, but I, the part that you just went over, Joel, is so important because um, the king is just so amazing at getting rid of Saul. And I, I think that that he you know, sometimes goes through the math just to make that point and he does it well. and so um, it's important. It's interesting,
4: I feel like you're having this philosophical discussions. I remember in early episodes we said, how amazing is the kidney in reabsorbing sodium? We have this sodium hydrogen exchanger, we have sodium glucose, we have sodium phosphate. The hemodynamics are just natural to reabsorb based on the hydrostatic pressure, et cetera. And I remember that we, we said, you know, to get, dump sodium, we, we're pretty, kitties are pretty bad. <laughs> the peptide, it's really lousy. But now we're actually concluding that kidneys are pretty good. <laughs> That's interesting.
5: Well, we have lots of things to turn off, right? <laughs>
0: the next section I thought was one of the coolest sections because we were talking about all these effector mechanisms. And here's where he's like, they're all interrelated they all cover for each other. And he talks about the redundancy of the control systems. He says this is an essential backup. And the first one he gives an example of is patients that are status post-adrenalectomy. And these patients take a fixed dose of fludrocortisone every day. And so we think of aldosterone as something that goes up and it goes down and it's super important for regulating blood pressure. And here we have this population of people that, no, they just take 0.1 milligrams once a day, every day. And Do they have hypertension? No. Do they get fluid overloaded? No. It's amazing that these patients don't get sick because we think about aldosterone as being this super important thing that we're always adjusting. These patients have no regulation of their aldosterone levels at all. They're on fixed doses. They're fine. Uh, So I thought that that was interesting. And then he gives two examples of AMP, which are just bananas. So... Burton Rose loves ANP. It clearly is one of his favorites. And so one of them, mice are giving an ANP vaccine, right? So they develop antibodies against ANP. So they their ANPs go to zero. They're made ANP deficient by immunization or by blocking renal action of ANP have demonstrated an impairment in the natriuretic response to acute volume expansion, but not to achieve chronic hypervolemia, right? So it doesn't Get them really sick. They they're not quite as fast, right? They're hobbled a bit in their response, but overall they're just fine. And then the other one was they they do something genetic where they have ten times the normal amount of AMP, right? Increase it by a factor of ten. An extra they give them an extra AMP gene, right? Trisomy ANP. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> And nevertheless, sodium excretion is still equal to intake, still in sodium balance, uh, perhaps due in part to the concurrent fall in blood pressure that limits the natriuretic response to ANP. Thus, ANP may contribute to, but is not necessary for, the maintenance of sodium balance.
7: I think that's kind of like, you know, giving them an extra giving them an extra ANP gene is like somebody being on a diuretic. It, you know, it forces a little bit of a diuresis, but it's not, you know, we've got all these other mechanisms that are going to kick in and, and, and block you. from that's, that's
1: really perceptive. I think that's exactly You know, right. a few days, sure, that sodium balance can stay intact, but you worry that they'd have an increased risk of heart failure for folks that are running at a lower natriuretic peptide level. Right? Like, that's the whole point of why these medicines that are magical, like Sacubitril, valsartan, work, is that they inhibit... Did you see the Sacubitril data that came out last week? At, uh, was it AHA that just happened? No, no, it and ACC it's not going to be AHA? last week by the time the podcast comes out. Do you want to give it a date? I know. Wow, you really want to it. I'm just going to dig. Thanks, Thanks I'm Josh. I'm going to give you terrible wow. audio quality and dig on the podcast release date.
0: Sacubitril uh, was approved based on a single study which was always kind of a little questionable. And the FDA kind of bent their own rules to get that approved. And the the repeat study just came out at ACC. And this was people that had heart failure following MI, no effect. Not an effective drug. Hmm.
6: (laughs) Hmm. Interesting.
8: After we recorded, the results of the Paradise MI trial were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This trial tested the role of angiotensin and neprilysin inhibitors, or RNAs, in patients with myocardial infarction complicated by reduced ejection fraction, they randomized 5,661 patients to Ramipril alone or to sacubitril Valsartan. The primary outcome was death from cardiovascular causes or incident heart failure, as defined by outpatient symptomatic heart failure or heart failure that led to hospitalization. In the end, treatment with Entresto made no difference in this outcome. Subsequently, the Paradise-HF trial was published revealing no difference in volume markers or clinical outcome with the addition of ARNI to patients with class 4 heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. Additionally, 20% of patients did not tolerate the ARNI during run-in period and another 30% discontinued the drug during the trial period. While the addition of an ARNI to the medication regimen remains a goal for patients with heart failure, these post-paradigm trials have revealed that medicine remains a practice of personalized art over blanket formulas.
7: I mean, AP's a- cool, but it just it doesn't do much.
3: I know, but he talks about it so much, right? Even in another chapter. (laughs) He loves it. (laughs) I know. It's everywhere. Well,
4: in his defense, most of the work that he describes is in sort of describe normal physiology. You know, we, perhaps we are a little biased as being clinicians that we don't see the relevance of A and P because, you know, outside this cubitrial discussion that sounds like has been recently challenged, we we don't find it uh, particularly impactful,
0: I guess, Okay. So the pressure naturesis. I think this is a super important concept. We're going to be talking about this over and over again. Comes up a lot. He describes it as an essential backup procedure. The important thing about pressure naturesis is it's totally independent of sympathetic nervous system or hormonally mediated sensor mechanisms. So this is a mechanism for regulating sodium handling dependent only on the pressure that the kidney sees. And that when you get this increased blood pressure, the kidney responds by spilling excess sodium, or maybe even it isn't excess sodium, but this is a natural response to uh, increased pressure. And he points out that we, what's it? The mechanism by which pressure naturesis occurs is incompletely understood as decreased reabsorption appears to occur in the proximal tubule and loop of Henley. And then he walks through a number of potential mechanisms They're actually kind of interesting. Diminished movement of reabsorbed solute and water from the interstitium to the capillaries, right? If there's increased pressure in the capillaries, that's just going to be, be opposing reabsorption of fluid there. And then the really weird one was in the descending thin loop uh, loop of Henle. That in elevations in the interstitial pressure there pushes fluid into the tubules where they're permeable to water, and this counteracts the osmotic gradient favoring water movement out, and it dilutes the sodium chloride required for passive sodium reabsorption in the thin ascending limb of loop of Henle. So it's a really kind of wild mechanism, but the, I'm not sure if the specific mechanisms are super important, but the big picture here... Mm-hmm. Is that you, when you get this increased blood pressure, when that increased blood pressure is transmitted to the kidney, you get spontaneous naturesis.
2: In my mind, for some reason, I always thought the pressure in naturesis had to do with the pressure in the glomerular filter. But it's really not. And I'm so grateful because one of the things I could never figure out is if it were increased pressure in the glomerulus, then there would be an increased flow. Increased presentation due to the macula densa, and how would the macula densa distinguish that from, say, ATN? And I could never, under, and then that would shut off, the- and so I could never understand that. So this notion that it has to do with flow then in the subsequent, you know, the capillary beds are in series, so the subsequent capillary bed that the pressure is so high it transmits there. I don't know if that's true, but if that is, or even this really creative mechanism with a thin limb. Either way, I think it's more interesting than what I had conceived of before, so I was grateful for that.
4: Yeah, I think it relates to the hydrostatic pressure in the peritubular capillaris has always been kind of the concept I try to grasp because it makes sense to me. And, And we apply it not just in the hypertensive range discussion. And we think if you don't have enough blood pressure, you're not going to, you're not going to pee, you know, no BP, no PP, that's a common joke, right? So it comes down to if you don't achieve enough peritubular hydrostatic pressure, you're not going to oppose a tendency to reabsorb your filtrate. And what is important to mention in this ch- this chapter is, you know, as we have mentioned several times, is not up to date. Because over the last few years, Alicia McDonald in California has done very interesting work in this world of pressure naturesis, where she has shown that when you induce acute hypertension, what it occurs is that the sodium hydrogen exchanger gets retracted back into the, from the luminal side of the cell into the cell. You get your sodium chloride cotransporter in a distal tubule that is sitting in the cell and the apical side gets retracted back into the cell. So essentially, you lose your sodium mechanisms, your mechanisms to reabsorb sodium. In those same experiments, when they infused angiotensin-2, that traffic of sodium transporters was lost. Mm-hmm. So the conclusion was that angiotensin-2 actually does play a role in at atresis, which doesn't really align. Well, that, that's what
0: with that's sense. what they're showing in Figure eight eight. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe I I, may, I I hope I got this right. But in Figure eight eight, there are three curves, and what we're showing here is a massive, massive change in sodium intake. So they start at sodium intake at one equivalent per kilogram per day. So you're talking about normal human beings, seventy equivalents of sodium a day, which is pretty significant sodium restriction, and they take it up to 25 milliequivalents per kilogram per day. I did the math. In a 70-kilogram person, that's 1,750 milliequivalents of sodium a day, roughly translated as 40,000 milligrams of sodium. That's many whoppers. <laughs> 40 grams. I mean, that's a lot of sodium. And, and the most amazing thing is in normal yes. people, if you said, "Wow, 40 grams of sodium," what does that do to the blood pressure? It bumped it by four points. Like, stop telling people to stop eating sodium. It doesn't have any effect. It has almost no effect on sodium. The kidneys really good at mad, at handling this. But the interesting thing is that that neutral effect, that ability to handle that sodium excretion that sodium load without having an effect on the blood pressure is highly dependent on angiotensin 2. And they show this in two ways. One, they give patient an angiotensin 2 infusion, essentially saying that the body is unable to suppress angiotensin. And there was another way where they do a second experiment, which I can Somewhat forget where they prevent people. They essentially suppress angiotensin 2. But if you remove the ability for them to have, uh, to move uh, angiotensin 2 up or down, all of a sudden that increase in sodium intake results in a pretty significant change in blood pressure. So in the patients with no angiotensin 2, it goes from 65 to 95. And that's mean arterial pressure. And in patients that have the high angiotensin 2, it goes from a mean arterial pressure of what looks like 107 to 150. And so the point is, is, that the ability to autoregulate, to be able to have a spontaneous naturesis in response to a massive sodium load is really dependent in the ability to suppress angiotensin 2. Do you think I got that right? Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. So. It's a pretty cool graph. It's an amazing. Jesse, what well, do you, 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 no, I just,
4: I just want to close on, on the comment that the experiment that Alicia McDonough did, in, in, in a way, uh, I had difficult time reconciling with this standard experiment in angiotensin world where if you infuse to a mouse a non pressor dose of Ang2, just typically, you know, 10 micrograms per kg per minute, very small dose, angiotensin 2, as we have discussed uh, here, will promote sodium reabsorption in the tubules. So the urinary sodium excretion and a non-pressor angiotensin 2 dose was down. But once you hit the mouse with a high dose of angiotensin, 2 where the arterial blood pressure is very high, then you get to the pressure naturehesis range and these mice excrete a lot of sodium. Even it's angiotensin 2 while you're infusing to the animal, that's what I have a little hard time putting those things together but i just want to just for the listener the main point of here about pressure naturesis Pressure is a real phenomenon where there is increase in the natriuresis when the arterial blood pressure goes up we're just discussing sort of what mechanisms have been studied and postulated
0: Again, in terms of like interesting experiments, the other interesting experiments they do is they do these suprarenal clamps in which they can induce hypertension, but by putting this clamp on, they prevent that blood pressure from being presented to the kidney. And in that situation, they do not get this pressure naturesis, which is a beautiful experimental design kind of showing that it's not neurohormonal. You don't have the baroreceptors in the aortic arch or the carotids transmitting the signal to the kidney, causing them to lose that sodium. If the pressure itself is not transmitted to the sodium, which you don't get when you have this suprarenal aortic clamp, the kidney still seeing normal blood pressure. They don't get this... Pressure naturesis and they continue to retain sodium, and they have, and they can get pretty, and they can get pretty sick. And then you release the clamp, and they get this massive naturesis. And then he goes through and he
7: talks about aldosterone escape. Aldosterone escape is really important.
0: Roger, tell us about aldosterone escape.
7: It, it, it's really critical because you know you have patients with with primary aldosteronism that you would think that at some point they would just retain sodium forever, and they and and they don't. They again, kind of like we've been talking about all night. They get to a new steady state, but they don't retain sodium forever. They uh, and it may be the pressure pressure naturesis that prevents it, but they don't develop edema and and they're living at a higher Extracellular effective circulating volume with hypertension, but but never edema, and it's a critical clinical finding when we look when we talk about primary aldosteronism that you can have escape, and and I assume it's pressure natriuresis, but I don't know if it's 100 percent that, but I think that's what it is. But it's it's really really important in understanding primary health, hyperaldosteronism and the clinical findings thereof.
4: Well, apparently it's also A and P, you know, surprisingly, <laughs> once again, atrial natriuretic peptide. It's also mentioned
0: as... as a mediator, as
7: yeah. A- it's mentioned because it's...
0: Mm. <laughs> Roger not happy about it, but I
7: think... <laughs> Roger's like, eh. Well, no, no, no. JC's right, but uh, <laughs> it, the important part isn't exactly if it's pressure or A&P, but the, the fact is is that it exists, and you'd think with autonomous, unrelenting aldosterone, at some point you would get edematous, and you don't. You would chain a new higher total body sodium, a new higher extracellular fluid volume, and a new higher blood pressure. But then you, at that point... you are are in sodium balance. And so you're living at higher blood pressure, but you're not retaining fluid, any more sodium at that point.
0: He engages pressure naturesis to talk about the opposite phenomena, which is kind of diuretic breaking. This is at the bottom of page 274. So pressure naturesis can also limit sodium excretion when renal perfusion pressure is reduced by effective volume depletion due, for example, to diuretic therapy, which is a totally, I had never even thought about flipping this concept over, it seems kind of, seems like a fast one that he's pulling on us saying, hey, what we've been talking about, increased pressure causing increased naturesis. Well, you can flip that around. And if you have decreased pressure, you're going to suppress naturesis. And again, he emphasizes that this is not neurohormonal related. It's going to be just completely intrarenal.
7: You know, uh, something I want to bring up and is the the hemodynamics of a theochromocytoma, which I find absolutely fascinating because you've got this, you know, this high blood pressure that you can't really, it's, it's autonomously high blood pressure. And so as a result, you actually get a naturesis. You get a pressure naturesis. And those patients are, what they are is, hypertensive and volume depleted. And that's why they're orthostatic. And that's why they're so dangerous to go to surgery because you take the pheo out and they have absolute vascular collapse. And it's a big finding. Now, you know, I can count the number of pheos I've seen on no hands because <laughs> you I never see them, but it's a, it's a really, intru- well, I, I, I haven't diagnosed my own pheo. It's always endocrine that's diagnosed the pheo, but uh, you know, we, we find we, we, we see them subsequently and, you know, in but no, I have not. Uh, I've not had my own. Uh, but anyway, that's beside the point. That they're they're actually hypovolemic. They're constricted. they they have a high vascular resistance and they're hypovolemic and therefore they're orthostatic because they've had this. The only way they can defend blood pressure was brought up earlier in this chapter is is, uh, is uh, 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 cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance. And if the resistance is always high, the only way you can lower your blood pressure is to lower your cardiac output if you do that by having a, a, a diuresis. And so you're clamped down and dry and you can't stand up. And I, I just think that's an absolutely fascinating physiologic uh, response to this very rare disease. But it makes me think of that when we talk about the hemodynamics of... of hypertension, volume, and uh, uh, vascular resistance. Okay, the last section of the
0: chapter I thought was like the best part of the chapter, which is this volume regulation versus osmo regulation. I thought this was an absolute gorgeous, like if, if there was like the one thing that I wanted to take from the beginning of the book that I would teach to my second year medical students about this was like, get this, here are your two primary roles of the kidney, right? We need to know how big the ocean in the body is and how salty the ocean in the body is. And here he kind of summarizes: here's how we detect it, here's how we affect it. He goes, he goes through, right? The de- what is being sensed? Osmoregulation, plasma osmolality, volume regulation, effective circulating volume. What are your sensors? Osmoregulation, we talked about this earlier. You can have a single point of sensation, right? The osmolytic in the body is the same. It's the hypothalamic osmoreceptors. Volume regulation, you need a bunch of them. We have the carotid sinus, the afferent arterial, the atrial. What are your effectors? Osmoregulation, antidiuretic hormone, and thirst. Volume regulation, sympathetic nervous system, AMP, pressure naturesis. Antidiuretic hormone takes, takes a second takes a second role here, and the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And then finally, what is regulated? Osmoregulation, water excretion via thirst and water intake. And I can't believe he doesn't have it, but urinary water excretion should be on that list too, right? What is affected? Yeah, for, certainly should be on that list. It's strangely not. And then volume regulation, urinary sodium excretion. Beautiful.
7: But Joel, you know what you describe is it's Probably the hardest thing for 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 non nephrologists to get is to separate these two because it's the it's the gist of hyponatremia. It's the gist of volume versus osmolarity, and you know we love it, we thrive on it. It's our it's our bread and butter, but it's one of the hardest things for for non nephrologists to. To to grasp. To us, it seems easy because, you know, we think about it all the time. We're able to separate those. No,
0: Roger, it's selection bias. Anybody who can understand that chooses to be a
1: nephrologist. I, I, I wish it was that easy, but I feel like even in nephrology, we have people who are still having this problem too, right? Like if you are dehydrated, you are hypernatremic. If your sodium is normal, you are not dehydrated. You are volume depleted. The thing you're worried about is volume depletion. And so if you're treating someone with normal saline, you're treating volume depletion. If you're treating lactated ringers, you're treating volume depletion. And so every person who comes in for IV fluids before a CAT scan is getting volume repleted, not hydration. And, and it's a silly thing to fight about words for, but it's because we care about the physiology and it's because we care about people understanding how to take care of the right problem. And I think if people are treating it as a you're just thirsty or you're just dehydrated they're not understanding the problems the patient has and i'm worried that leads to problems down the road for for taking care of sick people
0: i think that's a great conclusion to the chapter i think we're done because that's in fact the la- the very last paragraph of the chapter is is dehydration versus volume depletion josh did a beautiful job there
1: i'm just gonna sound like a, a really nasty person to end the chapter that sounds great <laughs> No no you you going to sound like the a person
0: a person Crack with the wisdom.
1: whip that's fine No that's that's outstanding
0: Anybody but Roger have any final points cuz Roger already got his final point that's the only reason I'm expecting like, <laughs> him he's already gotten his final point in Anybody else
3: I just was going to add that I agree with you that for young learners, this is a, always a very difficult point, but if we focus on this even from the beginnings, when we introduce the body volume regulation and then hyponatremia, then I mean, that's at least my hope. We've, I've been trying to teach this all over, you know, all the sodium problems have nothing to do with sodium. It's all water. Now um, I've seen some of the first years now coming back as fourth years and they're still like, can we go through that again? So I think it's also just that for us, as we get it because we you know live it and breathe it every single day